for joining me for this episode of Red Monks Docs are In. Today, I am joined by Dr. Tobias Wilson-Bates, Assistant Professor at Georgia Gwinnett College. Toby received his PhD in 2015 from UC Davis, and we met at Georgia Tech while completing our postdocs. So thanks so much for agreeing to speak with me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, Toby. Uh, so Toby and I share a number of mutual interests. Uh, they range several domains. I'm not going to get into too much of it, but they include 19th century scientific romance and H.G. Wells uh, in particular. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have Toby actually participate in my book launch last year. So thanks for that. Which was excellent. Go buy I, <laughs> I drug him back in here, but this time we're going to be talking about AI. So today we're focusing on a subject of you know, joint concern, namely the history of technology you know, as it's relating to machine learning, LLMs, things like that. So to begin this conversation, Toby, would you mind sketching out some significant landmarks in this space? Where uh, do literary and history of technology scholars tend to trace the idea of AI? And how did this uh, concept even develop over time? So the concept is, is super duper old, but like a lot of people take as this kind of origin point, the 1956 Dartmouth Summer Institute, this guy, John McCarthy and Marvin Minsky and a bunch of other kind of information theorists and applied mathematicians got together at a thing they decided to call the sort of artificial intelligence summer institute. Um, and the name was picked basically to avoid a bunch of pre-existing names for like information, the information theory and cybernetics and all this kind of stuff, stuff that like Norbert Wiener was working on at the time. Um, and it was supposed to sound kind of, it's like a branding campaign, essentially. And it's still, interestingly, a sort of brand thing now, because when we say artificial intelligence, it's kind of an umbrella term for a whole bunch of different technologies, feedback loops, and like symbol systems and this kind of thing. Um, but what's interesting to think about is that like, what's really caught people's imagination is the idea of artificial intelligence. Um, which in the American context is tied up in a lot of complicated ideas about intelligence and kind of eugenics and this sort of stuff about the idea of sort of uh, Rodney Brooks, the former head of the MIT Artificial Intelligence Institute, calls it like kind of human specialness. The idea that like there's a form of thought and being in the world that's particular to us that we might call intelligence that allows us to do special things. And so there's something like scary or transgressive about the idea that that's like kind of dispropriated from us and put inside of a machine. But um, we don't really know what it is in the first place. So it's kind of hard to lose it. It's a weird thing. It's a, it's a kind of cluster of various social anxieties and concerns that end up inside this word. Okay. And then when did the writers get involved in this or just culture more broadly? I mean, it was in the 50s, I guess, assume that we have television also, you know, getting their, uh, their heel in there. So how did that come, come about? Well, it's interesting. I mean, like all kind of narrative histories, there's a lot of layers to it because um, it can go back. As, you can go back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein if you want the idea of kind of artificially producing a thinking being. Um, or you can go to like Carol Capek's uh, Rossum's Universal Robots, which is where we get the word robot from. It's a Czech play by a, a Marxist, uh, <laughs> a Marxist writer in the 19 teens who comes up with this idea that like, what if we created these artificial beings called robots? Um, and then in the kind of 1920s, 1930s, as, as radio takes off, you get a lot of different kind of cybernetic or artificial life or artificial mind stories. But artificial intelligence, I guess, kind of marks a moment where we can think about this as like applied statistics, as stuff that's like really existing in the world that uh, we're actually using for, for various kind of technological purposes. But 
It's difficult. The stories have been going on kind of forever. I guess Isaac Asimov in the 60s writing like I, Robot would be the other would be the other kind of watershed moment of this becoming narratively accessible to a large audience. Hmm. I like that idea of narrative accessibility because it's not always just the first uh, text that comes out, but it's like who popularized it, right? Where is it, uh, you know, where is it kind of, um, uh, I guess, you know, again, getting it's like hooks into the broader imagination. Um, and of course, you know, I, I think we're kind of speaking about the West here. Uh, I think what's been so interesting about, you know, technologies like ChatGPT was the global reach that that occurred. Um, so, you know, I think it's kind of important when we talk about this sort of cultural uh, resonance of these technologies to, I don't know, I guess just with some boundaries around, uh, you know, who was included in those conversations and maybe who's excluded. Um, okay, very cool. Yeah, so you kind of mentioned the anxieties that this taps into. So what would you say are the the, the significant anxieties that these early precursors to today's large language models um, in culture and, and just, you know, historically, um, you know, what do they reveal and how did, how did culture address these, you know, fiction, television, how did, how did uh, all of these texts sort of engage that, uh, that tension? Yeah. So, I mean, you can go, as I said, Rossum's Universal Robots is really the kind of quintessential text uh, because it kind of coins the term of the, sing- the singularity, which people mm-hmm. often refer to when they think about fears concerning artificial intelligence or robotics. The idea that like some machine will gain consciousness and then like there'll be some kind of runaway event where lots of machines gain consciousness or machines sort of stage this kind of rebellion and then a genocide of humans, which, you know, spoilers, is, is how Rossum's Universal Robot ends. Um, they've wiped out, they've wiped out all humans. Um, and so a lot of these anxieties emerge in, in part out of, in the Western context, out of like things like fears of slave revolt. Because there's there's a long history of conflating machines and slaves because these are like working objects that don't have any that hypothetically don't have any agency, um, but there's an enormous fear that those machines will kind of come back and destroy their masters. But like later by the 20th century, a lot of it has to do with kind of proletariat proletariatization, <laughs> the idea that the working class will seize the means of production, um, and so this. There's this this fear that the things that work for us will eventually rise up and kind of destroy us or take from us, that kind of stuff. And we can see it now where people are so worried about artificial intelligence displacing skilled labor in the Hollywood strikes or in education or in manufacturing. This idea that like we'll lose our jobs, we'll lose our livelihoods and our, our means of living because of the machines that are replacing us. Right. So we have these fears of death. We have fears of agency fears of, you know, determining humanness, uh, and then labor. I mean, labor seems to come up again and again, and, uh, you know, dates to the inception of uh, depictions of, yeah, robotics um, in media. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so let's switch uh, centuries maybe a little bit and start uh, talking about the the state of AI today. So as someone who's studied the development of this idea, uh, what have you noticed about the conversation surrounding large language models and machine learning? Is there anything about this discourse that resonates with um, historical precedents, um, you know, particularly in the the you know, domain that, that you're studying? Yeah, so so historically, I think the thing to really think about is the enclosure of the commons. So um, in, in kind of British literary history, if we're going back to sort of... Um, to, to H.G. Wells and these folks, or in the United States history, we could think about it as like Manifest Destiny and the sort of uh, capture of the West or something like this. 
But there's all these resources that exist in the world that are not profitable resources. They, there's this kind of common spaces. You could think about it like a public library. You know, there's lots of resources there, but like there's no value being extracted. You can go there, you can sit around, you don't have to buy anything, you don't have to pay for anything. So there's no, there's no kind of labor extraction. There's no surplus value generated by that relationship. But then if you go to a bookstore, maybe this is like a bit more of like a site of extraction. Or if you go to Amazon, like even more of a site of extraction, you know, like the idea of like producing mass mass profits out of these activities like reading. Um, but the Internet is perhaps our, our most like profound public commons at the moment where people go on the Internet just to kind of fart around, you know, play on social media or this kind of thing. And and the question for the last, you know, couple decades has been, can we use this? Can like the information of the internet be like aggregated and turned into some kind of tool, um, both to maybe sell people things or to use all the creative expression that happens? And what's happening right now is maybe that's that's possible. Um, that that you know these these chat these chatbots and stuff they aggregate you know kind of billions and trillions of points of information in order to generate artificial speech or artificial thought or the kind of simulacrum of those things as if skilled thinkers were producing them in the world. And that's that's troubling in all kinds of ways because it potentially allows them to kind of replace skilled labor with the simulation of labor. Um, so very profitable potentially, but also then everybody who used to do that labor is now displaced and no longer has access to the production of that value, which, which is like troubling in part because it means something like the internet, the kind of common space that we all inhabit is kind of shifting from like its existence as a kind of public commons where we all kind of share in like something like social media into like more of a site of extraction where now information that goes up there, like let's say you write fan fiction is now being like mass aggregated to like produce artificially generated fiction or even more in the news or, or something like that. Yeah, I like that description. When I was uh, doing more digital humanities work, I think that that idea of like, you know, the commons was, it really drove a lot of my work and it made me really question what does it mean to make things public? And yeah, how does the internet both, you know, facilitating and sort of um, blocking this democratic impulse that I think that the, you know, that was the promise of, of the internet. Um, okay, so you know, we've heard a lot about AI in the classroom, and I'm hoping that you can uh, speak to that as a little bit as a, an instructor. I mean, I left the 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 <laughs> the ivy covered walls about five years now. I can't even remember. Um, so I am out, I'm out of touch, and I want to hear what's going on. Um, what are you seeing at universities, and how is AI going to affect education? So there's there's two tendencies that are kind of crashing into each other a little bit at the moment. Um, and the one is this attempt to kind of push, like, push down on kind of the labor value of like higher ed labor. And this has happened in a number of different ways. Like after the pandemic, we've emerged with a lot of models for online learning. So a lot, of, a lot more colleges and universities have online offerings now. And the interesting thing about an online course is that like, depending on how it's run, you could potentially enroll thousands of people in a single class. So instead of having like one instructor for every 25 students or something, you might have one instructor for 3000 students, which is obviously wow. like a real, a real saving on instructors. <laughs> <laughs> and even yeah. in the classroom, you see more and more of like people having insecure jobs, contingency, larger classroom numbers, like less freedom, less support for research or this kind of stuff. So 
on the one hand, there's this kind of pushing down on like what it is to work in like the education sector, um, to have less money, less freedom, less autonomy, more students, more kind of more labor relative to like the number of students in a room or on a computer. Um, but on the other hand, suddenly you have this ability to generate sort of false prose. You know, students can very easily generate an essay that sounds-ish like an undergraduate essay. You know, it could just take a couple seconds on, on ChatGPT. But at, under, under a system in which like you have like 10 or 15 students and you're seeing their writing all the time, that's not a very big deal. But under a system in which you're online and you have 3,000 students, it is essentially impossible to police that effectively. And so you keep on having this kind of daisy chain of like technological solutions for technological problems where now there's more and more of these policing software to try to catch artificially generated essays. But those right. policing softwares create their own sets of knock-on problems. Like they tend to, they tend to penalize non-native speakers in all kinds of ways because certain kinds of prose patterns that machines do, non-native speakers also do. Um, so like there's, there's a lot of problems that are creating problems, basically because the model in general of education is shifting at the moment. Yeah, that's huge. Um, I know it's problematic to ask an instructor what, how the students are feeling, but do you have a sense of how your, the you know, folks that are taking your classes are handling this big shift to AI? How do they feel about it? They're tired. They're very, they're very tired. Like, and that's really gets to the kind of core of the whole thing that a lot of my students at a pretty working class college are working, you know, at least 40 hours a week in order to pay rent and keep their pay cart, make car payments. Sometimes they have children, this kind of stuff. And so often what, what I find is like the problem on the student side is that they might not have time or they might feel like my the competence required for me to sort of build up my ability to write an essay isn't something that I have the support to generate. And mm -hmm. so often for students, it's a kind of pragmatic solution that it's like, I actually can't pass this class and I need this to pass this class to get this degree. And even the amount of support they can get from an instructor, if the instructors are also overwhelmed <laughs> and overworked, means that like there's real disconnects in how students are supported. And I think that disconnect is where, you know, where cheating can potentially kind of sneak in because the students feel like I need to figure this out. I can't figure this out with this level of support. So I need to bring in this tool that's just out there and readily available. Um, right. So, and how yeah. are you drawing the line between cheating and just supporting writing? I mean, that's, I think that's where the, the complexity comes in. Are you, is, does your university have a an academic um, statement about what that looks like, or are you determining it on an, you know, on a class by class basis? You know, does each instructor have their own policy? Yeah, the university policy is like really just sort of like anti litigious. Like mm -hmm. the it's it's all about kind of protecting the university. <laughs> I see. Um, and protecting the kind of value of that particular credential that the university sells, but on sure. a, on a on a class by class basis. It really, it interestingly depends on the instructor that mm. um, it's often very, it's often very personal to instructors. Some instructors take it yeah. very personally when people cheat in their classes right, um, right, right. and they kind of tailor, they tailor these statements about like the value of education or the value of time or like kind of honesty or trust or it's, 
it's an interesting sort of exercise in even like why we're in a classroom and what we owe to each other in a classroom and who we are as people in a classroom. Like, like so many technologies, it just kind of brings to the fore a lot of the questions that were always there anyway. Right. I don't envy you in having to make these determinations. It sounds extremely complex and, and just kind of, yeah, talk about being tired. But yeah, it sounds exhausting. <laughs> okay. It's a, so, it's a <laughs> well, I know, I know you're up for the challenge. All right. So let's talk about some of the scholarship uh, around AI. So Samuel Bowman published an article last year entitled Eight Things to Know About Large Language Models. It includes a number of really remarkable insights. Uh, but the one that really shook me was that experts are not yet able to interpret the inner workings of LLMs. So in essence, uh, what Bowman is arguing, and I'm going to quote here, is that because modern LLMs are built on artificial neural networks, and these are hundreds of billions of connections between these artificial neurons, some of which are invoked many times during the processing of a single piece of text. Any attempt at a precise explanation of an LLM's behavior is doomed to be too complex for any human to understand. Okay, so that's the end of the passage. <laughs> I'm curious about what you, you know, how you approach that sort of information. What would you say are the implications of AI being a black box and essentially unknowable? I mean, has history given us any tools to grapple with this difficulty? Yeah, I mean, I think history is almost almost always only dealt with this kind of thing, <laughs> which is essentially like mysticism, you know, the idea that like we are, we live in this kind of unknowable universe. Um, and I think there's, there's always a little bit of concern in my mind, you know, Arthur C. Clarke has uh, that quote, and this is a paraphrase that, you know, any sufficiently uh, complex machine will appear like magic to someone who doesn't understand its inner workings. And so there's, there's a little bit of an issue of saying like, well, we don't understand what's happening inside. It's like, well, we also can't count to infinity, you know, like just saying something is very big and like beyond our ability to kind of parse, it doesn't mean much um, in the grand scheme of things. It's like, I don't, we don't know what happened before the big bang or, you know, we don't know like exactly like the, the kind of atomic weight of <laughs> certain particles or their positionality. Like it's very easy to be confused. The question is like, if we're confused, if we feel overwhelmed by a technology or by an idea, the question is like, well, what are the effects of that idea in the world? Um, and I think one of the things with artificial intelligence is it's relatively clear the way it's being employed at the moment, that it's like a kind of question of labor or enclosure or kind of copyright. And so one of the ways this appears is like, let's say they, the, the model like scrapes all of Reddit or something like that and then generates a science fiction story. This is a problem. Clark's World, the science fiction magazine, had to shut down acceptances the other day because like tens of thousands of people were submitting artificially generated uh, science fiction stories. And so you're like, okay, like we've scraped the internet, we've created a fake science fiction story, and then we've like submitted it to a magazine or something like this. One of the things that that is unclear in the model, and in fact, this is sort of the point of the model in some ways, is that that's actually probably violated all kinds of copyright, right? It's stolen, it's stolen bits of information and patterns from people who've been writing stuff on the internet that belong, that's their intellectual property. But the, the mechanism in like shuffling this information so profoundly sort of like also shuffles our ability to track like copyright ownership or intellectual property. And so it's, it's sort of like you're able to remove like the intellectual property of an individual 
into like the machine. And in terms of like, that's then what generates profit when you try to sell that story. Like it's, it's kind of a shell game <laughs> of like, we don't actually know how this thing works, but you get to make profit and I don't is sort of the, the outcome of the thing. Um, and this is true across pretty much all of these technologies. It's one of the concerns with like open AI more broadly and chatbot technologies. These were proposed as public commons, but then they're bought by Microsoft for tens of billions of dollars. But what's actually being bought is the ability to kind of remove the intellectual property and labor of people who have been, you know, laboring in the public commons, you know? So like, that's why Microsoft is willing to pay tens of billions of dollars because it's, it's getting at these reserved pools of value that have otherwise been hard to tap. Right. Right. Okay. So with that, I'm going to wrap up this conversation. I feel like we could go on about all these subjects indefinitely, but um, I'm deeply grateful to Dr. Wilson Bates for sharing his expertise with us today. If you're interested in following more of his insights, he is a Twitter slash X celebrity. Um, <laughs> I'm going to include his social media handles in the notes. And with that, the docs are out. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me.